Hi, and welcome to Intercom on Product. With myself, Des Trainer, co-founder of Intercom, and Paul Adams, who's our Senior Vice President of Product. Over the time we've worked together, Paul and I have had countless conversations about things like how to run a product org at scale, how to balance customer feedback on your product roadmap, how to spread a product-first mentality throughout a company, how to maintain design excellence in a fast-growing R&D team, and so much more. In this series, we're going to begin sharing some of these discussions with you on a regular basis, covering everything from industry trends, what's hot right now, all the way through to things like, how are we embracing the rise of automation? So if you're a designer, product manager, engineer, researcher, or anything in between, we think you'll find these conversations really valuable. You can subscribe to Intercom on Product on iTunes, you can stream it on Spotify, or even just grab the RSS feed in your player of choice. Thanks for listening. Hi, and welcome to Intercom on Product Episode 10. We apologize for the significant break. A lot of stuff has been happening in the world since we last connected. I'm joined as ever by our SVP of product, Mr. Paul Adams. Hello, Paul. Hey, guys. And today we are not going to talk about the, the tragic events unfolding around the world around COVID. We are going to stick to our regular topics because we believe that we don't have any unique or expert insights we could offer you in this regard. And if you're pressing the podcast for Intercom on Product, I'm guessing you want to hear about products. So that's what we're going to talk about. Paul, today's topic is going to be potentially inflammatory. It is uh, product judgment and why it matters. Why does every designer and every product manager need a really sharp sense of product judgment? Can you expand on, I've heard you say this phrase before, can you expand on what you mean by product judgment? Yeah, I sure can. So product judgment, uh, like you said, is notorious to topics because when most people talk about it, they don't define it. And I guess we're going to try and do that today. Product judgment has other names too. It's sometimes called product taste. It's sometimes called product intuition, sometimes called product instinct. It often manifests itself in people saying things like, hey, that person has great product judgment or that person has great product taste or that person doesn't have great product instinct or the decisions they make means they don't really have good product intuition. So it's a real thorny one, like I said. The way I use the term product judgment more than the other ones, I just think it's a bit better. At least judgment, you can kind of start to think about ways in which you might inform that judgment or build it over time. The way I, I define it is the idea that you can use your own judgment. So you're just using your own judgment, like in a meeting or a workshop or whatever. Uh, the idea that you can use your own judgment to one, uh, accurately predict what your customers need, want and value. And then two, design the right solution for them. So that's what it is. Uh, at least in my definition. And I, I can sort of immediately see where like any label that is is not hyper-specific is likely to upset people, frankly, because of the lack of specificity. Like if I said to you, you can't speak German, you'd probably say that's true. If I say to you, you lack taste, you're almost certainly going to take offense from it. Yep. When I think about the importance of it, like I, I, I think that it's mostly an accelerant. It lets a product manager or a designer role play multiple different futures in their head where like they've designed it this way and users reacted. They designed it a different way and the users reacted. And they can sort of not just think about the user, but also think about the the logical flow the user would now be in, the likely future behaviors. And in an ideal case, can think about how that will trickle down in terms of like core user metrics and how it will ultimately impact the business. That is like why and I make that distinction why when we're talking about these decisions, it's not like my shade of blue is greater than yours or like I think the button should go here and you think it should go there. 
It's about your ability to assess the future anticipated business impact based on the decisions you're making in your Figma file or in your or in your scope sheet as a designer or as a product manager. How do you acquire it? Like if we left Intercom today and went to go and work for a different company, how would you go about tuning your product judgment? Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to this. So we can kind of break it down. One thing that I thought there, Des, and you were talking was when people use their judgment to make recommendations or decisions or you know ch- choices, hey, I think we should go A instead of B, or we should design it this way and not that way. A lot of it's done subconsciously. So I think they do do what you said, which is to you know walk in the shoes of customers. But I think they often do it subconsciously. And their kind of subconscious brain fasts forward a million different inputs they've had over the months and years to you know surface up that like recommendation that they kind of say, hey, I prefer option A. Which, which actually then kind of speaks to your question, which is how do you get it? And in my experience, I think there's only one way to get product judgment, and it's dead simple, and that is that it's obtained through direct experiences with customers. And that's it. You know, and we can get into the details of what that means, but it's direct experiences with real customers doing real things, really using your product. You know, it's not, and not kind of like indirect experiences or kind of secondhand information. Let's spend a second on this because I think you used specific words there and I'd like to understand them. What's indirect and what's direct for you here? Yeah, so, and again, it's definitely a wide range here. So direct is, I'm a PM or designer. I'm sitting down with a customer or on a video call with a customer. They're a real customer and I'm watching them, observing them and talking to them in a structured way about what they're doing. So I'm, I'm observing them really, really using our real product. Right. Uh, and so indirect, you know, one version of indirect is the research team did that activity. And now they're telling me, you know, what they saw, what they observed, or I'm reading the, the research team's report. That's like the same thing happened, but it's indirect. Other things that are indirect, things like surveys, analytics, you know, data, like these are all like obviously valuable things too. And I'm not saying don't have a research team. That's obviously a valuable thing to have too in many cases. But in order to build this judgment, which is, you know, it's kind of surfacing from building intuition. You need those direct experiences and you need many of them, like many, many, many of them, uh, which we can get into the specifics of that too. So it seems like you're, are you appealing for the anecdote to still remain? Like I could imagine if I'm a researcher, I, I could argue, why would a designer need to do this? I've already watched like eight hours of users using the product and I've aggregated all the insights and I've written them all up and it's it's easily digestible in a sort of like one page doc. Why on earth would somebody have to redo that work for themselves? Yeah. Yeah. This is, so it's really, really the distinctions and subtleties here are so important. So what you're trying to do, you know, again, remember the kind of top level theme, like what you're trying to do is build judgment, which takes months and years, right? So what you're not doing is like a one-off research study and then listening or hearing about the results of that study. Oh, hey, we tested this specific UI with these people and here's what we found out. Or, you know, um, what you're trying to do is build that judgment over months and years. And, and like I said, over talking to hundreds of customers, you're trying to build this real, really deep, again, like subconscious understanding of all of the different ways in which your product is used, the pattern, you know, it's pattern matching, pattern recognition, like your brain seeing all this stuff in real time, you, you kind of just have to put in the minutes and the hours. You're like you're sort of tuning a system in a sense. Like, and the, and the argument is like that. Like, 
the sort of the emotional visceral footprint of seeing someone struggle to like, you know, close an archive, a conversation in the inbox will last with you so much more than like finding number four participants seem to take longer than average to close a conversation. Yeah, exactly. So that makes sense. So then, um, there's two other parts to your sort of formula. So it's like real direct experiences of, of real customers using your actual product in real use cases. And I guess like what I'm hearing in the repetition of the word real is that like you don't think we can fake any of this. You don't think a non-user is a good source of learning unless it's like, unless it's maybe a prospect. You don't think a fictitious use case is in, let's pretend you wanted to send a customer newsletter is a real use case. And you don't think that a mocked product, for example, like a paper prototype type thing is real either. If I'm reading you correct, could you just expand on each of those as well? Yeah, I think there's kind of two things here. One is, you know, again, the distinction, what I'm appealing to here is not, it's not a one-off research project. It's a, almost like a lifetime endeavor, honestly, like an investment over the course of your whole career. And especially as you move from company to company and product to product, which you can get into in a while. So that's one thing. It's not a, it's not a one-off project. And like you said, it's basically a real, it's, it's human connection. You know, it's like you're building a real deep sense of uh, how people feel and think about your product. It's because it's real for them. Like you said, you see their emotion, their frustration, their joy, their happiness. And then when you see it over and over and over and over again, and oftentimes it's not even the thing that, that a research project might be, you know, if you sit in a research project, for example, you, know, you don't have to do this interviewing yourself necessarily. It's the direct experience, the direct observation for me. You just build these patterns over many, 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 many interviews. You know, so like, you know, to, to use a real example, I worked on Gmail when I worked at Google and I worked on Gmail multiple times over my time at Google. And, you know, I worked there as a researcher predominantly and just over the course of interviewing people about Gmail for years, like, you know, on and off, a month here, two months there, break for three months, then like a real flurry of activity over six months. Like you just build this, like again, back to those words, an instinct and an intuition for how people use Gmail. And so when you start to talk to, to other people in the team, like other PMs, other designers, people with ideas, look at design work, look at mock-ups, look at prototypes, you have this judgment. You just can know and predict with great accuracy how people will respond to it. You know, whether it's they'll value it, they need it, they care, or they can use it. So again, it, it, it sounds like it's, it's that ability to actually literally emulate a user and, you know, your brain can run multiple simulations of like design decisions really quickly. And, and I, I guess like, you know, it's, it's pretty obvious to me now, like in, in the opposite case, if you don't have this, then your only option for validating the things you might do would be some type of exhaustive testing, right? You'd have to be like, well, I'm going to try these three different versions. So let's do a multivariate test. Let's roll them out. Let's do extended betas. Let's see which one performs. Is that like the sort of, like if we assume the goal is shipping shit that actually works with some degree of evidence that it will, your options are like, I really, really, really know my users and I know the use case and I know exactly what they're trying to do. And I'm very confident this will work or I'm going to test the hell out of this. And testing is expensive versus intuition, right? Yeah, big time. You know, I think you can apply this pattern to other domains too. So for example, I'm kind of making this one up, but I, I imagine I have no experience with law or being a lawyer or anything like that. But I imagine that great lawyers are, are, are in many cases great lawyers, maybe because they know their stuff and history and other legal cases and so on, but also because they've sat in a courtroom day in, day out, day in, day out for months and months and years and years. 
And the best ones are the ones who take all those observations and can then apply them to things that are happening in the future. So which is another thing we should get into too, which is like the application of the judgment. You know, it's one thing to kind of, or the application of the observations, I should say. It's one thing to build all the observations. And it's another thing entirely to be able to apply them. But I think like, if you think about this, there's lots of fields of work where, you know, doctors probably another one where like the more things you see, if you're like an EOR doctor, the more times you're in the emergency room, seeing and reacting, seeing and reacting time and again, time and again, you build this judgment, you build this instinct. And I think when you hear it that way, it's kind of hard to argue with it. Like it's pretty basic and fundamental in a, in a bunch of ways that you, these direct experiences with customers is the only real thing that can build the judgment. Uh, and I'm sure many people listening are like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's obvious. I get it. I'm already there. I do it all the time. But then the question I'd ask people is like, do you really do it all the time? Like really, really, you know, because many, many designers, especially, but PMs too, that I know and have worked it over the years, don't do it. They do a bit of it, but they don't really do it. Like it really deeply internalize the need to do it. Yeah, it, it's a real like dental floss statement, like in that everyone agrees and understands and will argue that they know exactly why they should floss every day. And then in practice, if you actually ask people to really honestly admit how often they floss, it's almost certainly not every day. So I, I think it's similar to that. Like in the Toyota production system, they have this phrase, again, Shigun Butsu, which is, uh, I'm probably pronouncing it horrendously, but like it, the gist of it is, it's like go and see, get to the factory line and watch what's actually happening so that you can take the right actions. And I think you know, you were correct in saying a lot of people are probably nodding along going, wow, how, how are the guys, you know, kind of pissing away 10 minutes talking about this when it's such an obvious thing. Maybe this section of the podcast isn't for them. Maybe let's talk to the people who are genuinely not doing it. What's going wrong that designers and PMs aren't spending enough time with customers? Yeah, so I, by the way, like, I, you know, I should say I am absolutely guilty of this too. And especially as I've kind of progressed in my career and I guess I've moved into more managerial and leader positions. I've gotten worse at this, uh, which is which is one of the reasons, which is that it's time consuming. But the, the kind of first thing I, I would appeal to people to be open, people who think, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it, to be open-minded about is the idea that they need to deeply internalize the need for this. You know, it's not like I'm working on project A and next is project B. And as part of project A, I'm going to talk to some customers, figure some stuff out. Okay, move on, next project, project A is done. Next project, project B, you know, blah, blah, blah. It goes deeper than that. And again, when I kind of reflect over the years and all the different people I've worked with, in design in particular, the world-class designers that I worked with, without exception, had internalized this idea. And all they wanted to do was talk, talk with customers and spend time with customers or, or users. You know, you pick your favorite word there. That's what they wanted to do. They loved customers and users more than Figma, you know, like... That's maybe test one. Do you, what do you love doing more? Sitting in front of Figma or sitting in front of customers talking about what you've designed? And so that, that like is, is a big thing. And so, you know, to answer your question, it's time consuming. You know, it takes a lot of kind of proactive communication, organization, energy. Uh, like I remember, you know, I have loads of different memories of this over the years, but, you know, prior to Intercom, I was at Facebook, before at Google, before that, a UX consultancy called Flow Interactive in London. And at Flow, we were like a UX shop, so we would do research and design. And, you know, over the course of my kind of two and a half years there, I interviewed about, I don't even know how many, like somewhere around 750 people, I think, or 500 to 750, somewhere in that range. You know, and just in all different projects, watching them use products. And we used to do like five people a day, six people a day. So it'd be like five or six hours of interviews a day. And it sucks, it sucks the energy out of you. 
it's, you know, you're just sitting there observing, observing, watching, intent, you know, doing it well. Uh, and so it's hard. But I think that's a, that's a reason people do it. You know, they try to do a bit of it. They get tired. It's easier to stay in the office, not these days, but usually uh, it's easier to stay in front of your computer. It's easier to just reopen the sheet, reopen the yeah, Figma file. Figma doesn't bite back like in that. Like Figma, doesn't, yeah. Figma doesn't give you like counter opinions about what better things you should be doing. Exactly. On the idea like, you know, this is obviously a skill that must be like learned and trained and nurtured frequently to actually keep it sharp. How do you make it like a safe thing to talk about? Because I could imagine most designers or most product managers would be distraught if somebody said to them, hey, we, you need to work on your product judgment here. Like the, the allegation would be that would lead you to say that would be that, you know, having observed the designs you make or the decisions you frequently make, I don't believe you're getting them more right than wrong. And I believe the reason for that is that you're not successfully emulating uh, users' thoughts and concerns when you're working here. You're, you know, you're not prioritizing the right things, and as a result, I need you to spend more time with customers. But I, I still think that that such a thing would, uh, would would irritate people. How do we take the harshness of the allegation away and make make, make just one's product judgment ability a safe thing to talk about? Yeah, and that I think, by the way, is the key thing. Like, we need to, you know, one of the things I guess that we're appealing to here is making this a safe thing to talk about. Because um, when you do when you do talk and question people's product judgment, if you don't do it in the right way, you kind of question their ability, you know, and, and that obviously impacts their ego and all sorts of stuff, and make people worry about their confidence. So, like, here's a good example. You know, I'm gonna, what I'm going to get into here is like the idea that product judgment is domain specific. So when I joined Intercom, which is now like, I guess, nearly seven years ago or something like that, like I said earlier, I'll use Gmail as an example because I think it's, it, it, it makes sense. Like I worked on Gmail and I'd interviewed, you know, hundreds of people, watched hundreds of people use Gmail over the years. So I feel like, you know, back then I was pretty, maybe expert even, I was going to say competent, maybe expert in thinking about email, how people use email, et cetera. So I come to Intercom and, you know, Intercom is a customer communications product and email is a communications product. And there's similarities in the product. You can send messages and reply to people and talk and tag conversations and so on. But I remember when I came, and when I joined Intercom, I had way less of a sharp view on product judgment. You know, I think Intercom was about 18 months out at that stage or maybe two years. And I remember, I kind of can see this now looking back. You know, you had very strong product judgment when it comes to Intercom. And I had zero. I'd never watched any Intercom customer using the product. I'd not talked to one single Intercom customer. But I, at the time, kind of blindly assumed that because I could design Gmail, I could design Intercom because they're kind of generally the same-ish in a way. That was like partly right and partly wrong. It was partly wrong in that like I had no idea how, you know, B2B customer communications products and uh, were working. Like I'd never worked in it before. And I'm sure, Des, you'll remember I made some pretty bad designs. Well, <laughs> Is this why we had seven, seven different inbox designs? Yeah. Oh, listen, yeah, that's one reason. Yeah, well, probably the main reason. Turns out you can't design into kind of Gmail. Anyway, so there was things that I, I just had zero product judgment specific to the product space of Intercom. Um, but there were things that are similar. So, you know, how do you design good ways for people to send messages on, at the UI level? How do you design good workflows for tagging conversations? Well, you can do it in Gmail and it works well. You know, there's so there's things that are domain specific. And so some of those examples there might be more on the design side, like a good composer looks like X and a bad composer looks like Y. And I could apply those directly to Intercom and have like good product judgment specific to that. But then there was parts of Intercom that I had no idea 
about. And I had no product judgment and I had to build it. And the only way I could build it, which is what I did, was talk to customers. And I remember you at the time and Owen, you know, very encouraging that I go do that and talk to customer after customer after customer. And of course, you know, I, I've seen since, like, you know, you show me screenshots where you would talk to customer after customer in the early days of Intercom, you know, trying to find product market fit, customer after customer after customer after customer after customer after customer, like dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of customer conversations. And so that's how I built it, you know, at Intercom. And so I think it needs to be safe for people to, you know, kind of like evaluate themselves on product judgment and see where they are and, and talk about it safely to their peers. So for example, if you're a new person to a company, there's specific domains where your product judgment is much poorer than people who've worked in that company for a while, even if they're way more junior than you. Or it could be the case that you just haven't talked to the customers and you could be more senior or you could be more seasoned. You could be there for a while, but you just haven't had the opportunity or never prioritized it. And so you haven't had those direct observations and therefore your kind of brain hasn't pattern matched to, to, the, to the conclusions and the judgment. I'd also say it expires as well because, mm -hmm. you know, if you think like in general, like if a product is like a conversation with the market, but over time, like the product evolves and the market evolves. So what I mean by that is like, obviously when I used to sit down with customers who would use our inbox or our messaging features, it was 2013 and Intercom looked a lot different, but also our customers forgiveness was probably a lot different as well because back then, like it was, you know, a lot of what we were doing was relatively new, whereas now we're like seven years or eight years later, a lot of the things we've built have become mature technologies and uh, people's expectations are now a lot higher as well. So I think just because you knew some, I think this is more maybe a lesson to like early stage employees or, or founders, whatever, just because you had a good grip once, it doesn't mean that it sticks around forever. Like if you don't keep meeting customers, ultimately all your knowledge will, will expire. But in a way, it's even worse than if you're a new employee, at least a new employee knows that they don't know for the most part unless they're like super confident whereas there's nothing worse than a it's what's that phrase like it isn't the things you don't know that kill you it's the things that you know for sure that just ain't so and i think that, that that's where i find myself often getting like you know definitely over the last couple of years i've had to learn that like hey there's a lot of things that i was very sure about like hey our, our average customer is probably a ceo of a small startup that's just absolute nonsense these days and I've had to kind of retrain myself a lot to understand that like we, we're, we're in a different world. Yeah, I think like on the judgment piece to folks out there who want to make this a safe and open conversation in their company, the thing that like I try to always remember is that a lot of this discussion will be around feedback. And feedback usually needs to be three things. It needs to be like immediate, clear and concrete. Uh, so immediate is in like it can't be like last year you made a bad call clear as in it needs to be like very specific about what the bad call was and concrete meaning it has to stand up for itself like it can't be like it can't be just fundamentally i prefer a different color of blue so when you actually want to talk to somebody about where your product judgment or their product judgment is lacking or or very strong it's important that you have those traits because the exact opposite is where most of these conversations can go the feedback is delayed in that you hear about it weeks later i never really liked what we shipped there type thing the feedback is abstract where it's like, I just think that's a bit weak, but you're, you're like, you haven't been tied down to actually be clear about what that is. Or it's opaque in that like, no one can actually infer if you're doing a good job or not, because you know, you're, 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 you're not letting the idea of product judgment uh, stand alone. You're, it's, it's, it seems to be like the anointment is passed to somebody who gets to decide what is good. So like, I, I would just encourage in, in trying to make this a, an easier conversation to have, you need to think about those three things. The other piece I'd say is, and like, 
this is definitely a message more to leaders is that you have to know when it's okay to say, hey, everyone, I know you're looking to me for a decision. I do not have enough good product judgment in this area. So because of that, I suggest that we all go and spend more time with customers in, in this exact topic because I don't think any of us are yet at a point where we can make a significant bet here and make it an informed one. I think like until you, until it's a safe space, and that's it, this is why it's important for leaders to say this, if it's not safe for people to say that, what you're going to get instead is a lot of false confidence and bad bets. Yeah, I think that's spot on. There's actually, I think, three different situations a leader could find themselves in. And, I, and actually kind of three, these three situations are also something that, like if you're not a leader, if you're just, you know, a designer, PM or someone on the team, if you're looking to your leader to try and understand how they think about these things, you can kind of look for these three too. One is that people with strong product judgment, this is kind of like the, the compounding kind of nature of this thing. People with strong product judgment, like you said, Des, are very good at saying when they don't have that judgment. You know, like they, they just innately know that, well, I didn't talk to the customers about that. And so I can't possibly have good judgment about it because I understand how judgment is built over years. And therefore, either let me defer to the people in the room who have talked to customers and built judgment about this thing, or hey, let's get talking to customers ASAP about this thing and start building some judgment. So that's kind of like the compounding nature of the thing. People with strong judgment are good at saying when they don't have it. The kind of other extreme is the most dangerous of all, which is people who think they have strong judgment but don't. You know, And, and this, this can range from like junior folks with a false sense of confidence who don't really understand if these things work yet, or you know, and they've yet to kind of be humbled by seeing their product fail, for example. Or like senior leaders who can often have a greater false sense of confidence and then typically that, that pattern is where they attribute product successes to their own judgment rather than actual causes such as timing or luck or whatever. And so that kind of leads me to this middle ground where you can have people with strong judgment who know when they don't have it. You can have people who think they have it, but they don't. And then you have people who do have it, but can't explain it. And this is like the trickiest of these three to kind of disambiguate. They just know something is the right option, but they find it hard to articulate it because their brain is so subconscious and it's, their brain is shortcutting to the recommendation. But I think you can typically tell if a leader or manager is a person who's built up strong product judgment by just seeing how they talk about customers. You know, do they have interest in talking to customers? Do you know that they've like a lot of history talking to customers? You may not have seen them talk to customers recently, but you know that the history of, of their work at this company and in this domain is that they've spoken to dozens and hundreds of customers over the last few years. Or, you know, they insist that everyone around them talks to customers. There's an insistence. So it's just kind of like just bias towards talking to customers, talking to customers themselves historically or in the future. And I think that's how you can kind of disambiguate some of these situations. Okay, let's finish on some rapid fire stuff. So I'm going to give you hard multi, multi-paragraph questions <laughs> and I need real quick answers. One is, why can't we document this shit? If product judgment is so good, why can't you just join a company and get the tree pager that tells you everything you need to know? Isn't that in a more efficient way to experience and catch up on all this? Uh, no, you, I mean, that's a funny one. You can't. Like, that's like saying, can you experience life that way? Like, you know, here's a one page on what it feels like to do a bungee jump. Uh, <laughs> you know, I get, oh, I get it. Uh, no, you, no, you don't. You've got to do it. So you, you got to do it. you got to feel it, experience it, live it. You know, 
your conscious brain is a tiny percent of your brain's processing and it's all the stuff underneath you gotta just yeah, yeah. there's no there's no tldr for life okay uh, another question how transferable is it? So if we take a, a company who people might pair us with, it would be something like Zendesk or HubSpot. If I walk out of Intercom today and go over to talk to, go over to take a job at Zendesk or HubSpot, PS, I'm not asking for a job. Um, <laughs> how, how likely is it that my, my judgment will transfer well? I think it depends on the domain. So like the Gmail Intercom example is a good one because some of it, the domain overlaps on the UI side, the workflow side. And some of it, it does not overlap at all. You know, Gmail, at least then, consumer email uh, intercom, you know, business communication product. So I think it depends on the domain. With Zendesk, you could walk into Zendesk for sure, having worked in intercom to both build customer support products and absolutely use what you've learned in intercom in Zendesk. But then there would be some things that are different in Zendesk and how do Zendesk works that you would need to learn about. That makes sense. Then last one, which is like, both of your examples have kind of reminded me like when you talked about Gmail, you talked about the similarities tend to be like maybe like tag, compose, uh, like just say like the micro interactions and the workflows around them. I, I, I think in most mature categories, when something becomes standard enough, it becomes a kind of design pattern of sorts, right? Like so if you think about like we had to invent a messenger that clung to the bottom right and popped up and overlaid and did all this sort of stuff. But like now it's a thing. And like, you know, so somebody from one of the companies who took inspiration from us change jobs like the design challenge there is not really there anymore there's now just a way to do it just like there's mm-hmm. probably a way to like build a visual campaign builder or a way to select users from a list or or, or like say like tag conversations and follow threads and all that sort of stuff that, that we bump into in like the classic shared functionality of all b2b products i actually don't know what the question's going to be here but I'll, I'll just hand it back to you and say like to what degree does like uh, product judgment overlap with just like general like cop on for designing in a specific industry, say? Yeah, to me, there's basically three things. There are many things that never change. There are things that change slowly and there are things that change fast. And I think the things that never change are things that are like rooted in human psychology. Hey, this is a human beings interpret X. Here's a list of 100 cognitive biases that exist in human beings, exist in our species. They're never changing, at least in our lifetimes. And so that's kind of what like design school is for or university is for. Right, like your, your, your banner should be red if it's an error or that type of thing, right? Yeah, red, yeah, red means stop, green means go, at least in most cultures, you know, not all. And, and um, you know, in some cultures, red is a lucky color. So like just learning stuff like that, human psychology, design patterns, you know, this is stuff that does not change. And this is like foundational. Then there's the things I think you're talking about there, guys, that are things that change slowly. So, you know, we now know that like an X closes a browser window and a kind of a horizontal line thing makes the browser window minimize. You know, these like, that that probably will never stay like that. Unlike say a cognitive bias, it'll change within our lifetime for sure, Uh, but it'll change slowly. And then there's the things that are changing fast, you know, rapid innovation, brand new products, like all the stuff that's going on in the world right now is turning some industries upside down. And so when you're thinking about product judgment, you know, you kind of need to be able to, distinguish the difference between those three. That's a pretty comprehensive answer, even though I was only supposed to give you five minutes, uh, or sorry, five seconds. <laughs> okay, we better stop here. We're at time. I want to say to our listeners, uh, first of all, thank you to you, Paul, and then to our listeners, we hope this has been a little sip of your normal prior life, and we hope you all are safe, We that you stay safe, take care, and persevere, and we'll talk again soon. This has been Intercom on Product. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks for listening to the Intercom on Product podcast. 
For more content, go to our blog at intercom.com slash blog or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. 